Well, this morning we're going to continue in Philippians chapter 4. So please turn in your Bibles or swipe open your phone Bibles there. I'll be reading verses 10 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand as our ushers walk down the aisles here, and they would be happy to give you one to use today or to keep if you don't have one. So last week, Pastor Josh urged us to be known for our gentleness and not worrying or our stinking thinking. Uh, Christians ought to be characterized as tranquil, peaceful, in the midst of life's storms, unruffled by the difficulties of life. Uh, The nearness of the Lord in spatial proximity to us, He is near us, and also the nearness of His return are the anchor points that help us rejoice in all circumstances and not to be anxious about anything. But as we wrestle with the temptations to be anxious, we have to preach to ourselves. We have to think rightly instead of being led by our feelings. Right thinking leads to right living, and right living leads to right feelings. We should not be controlled by our emotions, but instead take them captive, our emotions and our thoughts, captive to the throne of Christ in obedience. And Paul himself was an example of this kind of spiritual stability. Despite being in prison, he never stopped rejoicing in the Lord. He wasn't racked with anxiety. He was racked with thankfulness. Paul knew how to rejoice in every circumstance because his heart was guarded by the peace of God and also the God of peace. But Paul didn't arrive at this place of spiritual stability overnight. He needed to pour a foundation in his life. Another virtue was needed to be present that paves the way for joy. He had to learn to be content. So in our text this morning, he starts to say what he had intended all along with his letter. Thanks. He begins to express his gratitude for the financial gifts and the ministry support that he had received from Epaphroditus and the Philippians. And as he does this, Paul offers himself up as an example of how the foundation of contentment is laid so that we can do the same in our lives. So if you are able, would you please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word and follow along as I read Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you please bow with me in a word of prayer? Lord, as we just finished singing uh, a perfect prayer, I do make that my prayer now for us, that you would um, plant this passage deep into our hearts, that you would cause it to take root and that it would bear fruit in our lives. Uh, In the midst of our world, we are um, inundated and surrounded by people who are not content 
and it is tempting all the time to live that way. It is tempting in our own hearts to not be content. And so we recognize that there is a darkness we're struggling against outside and within our own hearts. And so we need your help. We need you to show us Christ this morning. We need you to help us to see and savor him so much that we would say, where else can we go, Lord? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. So we ask for your blessing over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me share with you two situations straight from here in Illinois that I think help illustrate this text this morning. In the 1950s, there was the Clark family who lived in Havana, Illinois, and had two sons. And by all outward appearances from the get-go, these boys seemed to be your average, healthy, smart, intelligent young boys. But as they got older, they started to exhibit symptoms and suffer from a degenerative neuromuscular disorder similar to cerebral palsy or multiple sclerosis. And this disease that they had, this disorder, eventually led them to become blind, paralyzed, and unable to eat or even speak. And for 50 years, their parents suffered along with their sons as they ministered and sacrificed for them so much through the difficult road that they had as they cared for them 24-7 until their sons died. But at the same time, about an hour north in Peoria lived a man named R.G. Letourneau. He was a successful businessman and an inventor who brought massive innovation to the earth-moving equipment business. He became incredibly wealthy, was awarded more than 300 patents for his innovations, and he supplied somewhere between 50 and 70% of all earth-moving equipment to the Allies during World War II. As you just look at those two situations side by side, who do you think was more content in life? Who do you think was content? Letourneau and his wealth or the Clark family and their daily suffering? What do you think? The answer is both of them. Both of them were content. Because contentment is not just a virtue only the sick and the poor struggle with, nor is it only the wealthy who struggle with it. The Clark family were faithful Christians who found their hope and joy in the Lord and in the future resurrection. Letourneau himself was known as God's businessman and donated 90% of his wealth to charities and Christian organizations and lived off the remaining 10 Letourneau and the Clarks were both content, not just with what God had brought into their lives, but satisfied in God himself. And that's the main point of this text this morning. Joyful contentment in all circumstances only occurs when we learn to be satisfied in God alone. Now, as Christians, we all know that contentment is something we need, but we don't always know how to go about getting it? How do you achieve contentment? So before we talk about the how, as Paul uh, shows us in the text, it is important to understand what makes contentment so hard. Uh, what is the enemy of contentment? Is it discontentment? Is it complaining? Is that the opposite 
I would argue that according to the scriptures, the opposite of contentment, the enemy, is covetousness. The last command in the Ten Commandments deals with the heart and says, you shall not covet. Not your neighbor's house or his wife or anything else. Well, why is coveting wrong? Well, when we covet something, it means that we desire it so much that we are no longer satisfied by God. Our desires turn into idolatry and we worship the object of our desire instead of the creator. That's why Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the tricky thing about idolatry is that it can be very subtle at times. It can creep into our hearts even while we're pursuing good and biblical things. Take money, for example. We need money in order to take care of ourselves and our families. But it can easily turn into coveting when the desire for money turns into an anxious desire and a consuming one because what we really want is financial security. Or maybe we covet a certain lifestyle that money makes possible, like living the American dream, and orient our priorities around money instead of around God's priorities. What about the essentials of life? We need food, clothing, and a place to live. But we can covet those too when they become the goal instead of a means to the goal. Another way of saying that is instead of being tools for serving God, they become the goal themselves to serve our own vanity and pleasure. What about your health? We need to take care of our bodies and be good stewards, but when we struggle with sickness, chronic and debilitating illnesses or the loss and pains of old age, we can become bitter about our ailments, despondent, spiritually complacent, or the opposite, you try to seize control, do everything you can to maintain your health because of you're afraid. Those are symptoms of coveting. Marriage, marriage is a good thing that the Lord has designed and a part of his plan but you can covet that if you're single. If you're married, you can covet the expectations that you have for your spouse and the way that you want them to be. Or you can covet someone else's spouse. We can covet having children too. You can covet at work when you start complaining about the people you work with, the pay or the job itself. You can covet your material possessions, the way you look, and even your personal freedoms. The point is, is there's no shortage of things that we can covet. As John Calvin put it, quote, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So as soon as you get done tearing down one idol in your heart, your heart begins to think of a new one and your hands create it. See, idolatry happens when a good thing becomes a bad thing because it becomes a ruling thing in your life. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about something in your life that's a genuine need or if you notice it's just a want it can all become coveting the moment you stop finding satisfaction in God and you stop obeying Him. But Paul teaches us in this text how to defend against and to repent of covetousness by giving us three principles necessary for learning contentment. And when we have this principle, when these principles down, it produces joy in any circumstance. So the first principle is we must learn to be confident in God's plans. Look at verse 10. 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul begins to express his gratitude, his thanks to the Philippians for their gift, but he can't help but burst with joy in the Lord. And at first, it sounds like Paul's kind of offering a backhanded compliment. It sounds like he's saying, it's nice that you finally decided to care about me again. Thanks. But that's not what he means. He's quick to recognize that they never stopped caring for him. He said, you were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have the opportunity. So at this point in time, when Paul's sitting here writing this letter in prison, it has been 10 years since he had stepped foot in Philippi. And throughout those 10 years, the Philippian church had sacrificially served and supplied Paul because of their deep love for him. When Paul left Philippi after planting the church there, he went to Thessalonica to minister, and the Philippians sent messengers to go there and say, hey, Paul, how you doing? Is there anything you need? Anything we can do for you? Look at verses 15 and 16 in the text. Paul wrote, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. See, they found out that he was in financial need and they collected an offering for him, not just once, but twice. And then even after he left Thessalonica and left Macedonia region, they still pursued him and went to go find out how he was doing so they could help him. And now at this present point in time, they sent Epaphroditus and a chunk of change. But do you notice one word that's missing from this verse in Paul's thank you to the Philippians? It's the word thank you. He doesn't say thank you. And I think that's a little strange to catch your attention when you, usually when somebody, when you express gratitude, you say thanks. But he doesn't do that. And there's a good reason why. You see, Paul had been slandered a lot of times throughout his ministry by people who usually wanted to usurp his authority, who wanted to take over the church. They would say, Paul, he's in ministry just for the money. He's covetous. He's greedy. You, know, don't, you don't want him to be here anymore. So, in order to combat that, he carefully nuances his gratitude to make it clear that's not the case. He was not primarily thankful for the gift, but for the givers. He was thankful for their friendship. He was thankful for their partnership in the gospel. And he was thankful for their spiritual growth. But he also didn't want to communicate to the Philippians in such a way that would lead them to think, hey guys, I'm only happy when you give me money. I am really needy, so keep giving me money. He did not want to put them in that position. So instead of saying thanks for the gift, he rejoices in the Lord. And the most important reason why is because God is the ultimate source of all these gifts that he has received. This was all part of God's plan. James 1.17 says, after all, every good gift comes from God, comes from up above. He is the ultimate source. God orchestrated the people, the provision, and the opportunity to provide for Paul. So when Paul says uh, that he rejoices that they finally revived their concern, that word revive is a horticultural term, and it speaks about flowers that bloom at the right season and the right time. And so he's talking about how at the right opportunity in God's plan, your love for me had an opportunity to blossom. And God was behind that. 
God was working all along behind the scenes, and without seeing it, Paul was confident in the Lord. He wasn't sitting in prison, wringing his hands in anxiety, wondering where help would come from and who it would come from. He was patiently trusting in the Lord's plans. His joy did not rise and fall based on his circumstances, but was immovably anchored in God. Paul's confidence in the Lord's plan is the first principle of contentment, and it happens to also be the source of his joy. That is what joy is. After all, joy is a glad emotion that erupts from confidence in God. I like the way Pastor Rick Holland put it. He said, quote, Christian joy is the glad emotion springing from the settled confidence that God is in absolute control and will bring about our good in time and his glory in eternity. So confidence in the Lord. You know what the word confidence, you know where that comes from, right? It comes from the Latin con fide, with faith. So when we talk about confidence, when we talk about that, we're talking about faith. Faith means trusting in the Lord. Paul wasn't panicking. He wasn't trying to control the situation. He wasn't scheming. He wasn't manipulating people or taking things into his own hands. He was trusting in the God who ordains all things and their timing. Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is, all things, not just the good things in life, all things. And that's only a comforting truth if the God who ordains all things is a loving God. And Romans 8.28 reminds us of that truth. It says, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So God not only ordains all things in your life, but he does it for your good because he loves you. Do you recognize and do you put confidence in God's plans in your life? Are you trusting in him with the hardships that you are going through right now? It sure is easy to have confidence in God when things are going well. But when things are going south, are you able to say like Job did in Job 2.10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker and a Christian who helped Jewish people escape the Nazis during World War II. She was eventually caught and sent to a concentration camp with her family. And on one particular day, she was sitting in the barracks with her sister Betsy, and their barracks was infested with fleas in their beds and all over. It was just terrible. And yet Betsy, her sister, said, Thank you, Lord, for the fleas. And Corey could not fathom and understand why she would thank God for the fleas. But as time passed by, she realized that the Nazi guards would not come into their barracks because of the fleas. And that allowed them to keep hidden the Bible they had smuggled into the barracks. It, it protected them from being abused by the guards. And it allowed them the freedom of sharing the gospel with the other prisoners. So Corey, in time, was also able to thank God for the fleas. We don't always know why God gives us fleas in our lives. He doesn't always reveal the why behind his plans, but we can take comfort in knowing that his plans are perfect and loving. That's what Job did when he lost everything, his children, his material possessions, and his 
own health. It's what Joseph did and when his brothers sold him into slavery and when he was wrongfully imprisoned. See, our suffering is never meaningless. Our suffering is never wasted. In moments of suffering, we have to look to the cross because the greatest suffering that ever occurred, the greatest evil that ever was perpetrated was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, through God's ordained plan, it also brought about the greatest good that ever occurred. As we learned last week, we have to continually think about what is true. We have to preach to our hearts daily and not allow our emotions to determine truth. Life is full of unmet expectations. You thought you might enjoy life with good health, but you're not. You thought you might have the job and the family you always dreamed of, but you don't. But do you let those unmet expectations phase your joy? Do you let it ruffle your feathers? They won't if you have confidence in God's plans and promises. Joy in the Lord is unshakable. That is part of what Christian contentment means. Let's look at the second principle. The second principle in verses 11 through 12 is this. We need to learn to be satisfied in God's person. Paul wrote, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So here Paul continues to nuance his thankfulness with a quick disclaimer. While he is thankful, he isn't actually in need. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. But what on earth does he mean by that? I mean, Paul's literally sitting in a prison. He is confined. He is chained to a Roman soldier daily. He lacked basic freedoms. He is dependent upon other people to provide food for him. And he is facing a trial in front of Emperor Nero where he might face summary execution. That sounds like a, legit, a lot of legitimate needs to me, like food, freedom, survival, a good lawyer. But Paul simply means that he has joy that is not in, rooted in the gifts from the Philippians. He doesn't view himself as needing anything because he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This wasn't something that suddenly dawned on him, but something he had to learn through, over time through the scriptures and through experience. You see this refrain throughout the verse, I have learned, I know how, I know how, I have learned. Paul experienced good times and bad times. But whether he was enjoying a feast at Lydia, the purple merchant's house in Philippi, whether he was receiving a vision from heaven, or whether he was being beaten and left for dead or imprisoned, he learned to live above his circumstances. So he calls contentment a secret, but it's really just God's public secret. Anyone can read this passage in the Bible and learn about contentment, but not everyone will have true understanding and the ability to apply it. That is what is secretive about it. Contentment, true contentment, is hidden to those outside of a saving relationship with Christ. So what does it mean to be content? He says he learned it. Well, what does it mean? The word literally means self-sufficient. And it was a word that he stole from the Greek philosophers of the day. The Greeks used it, especially ones called the Stoics, who thought that contentment meant self-sufficiency by training yourself to want very little. 
So if life threw curveballs at you and you're having a hard time, you really just need to be right, stoic. You just need to have a stiff upper lip. To come to a mental point where you get rid of all desire and see nothing and no one as essential. One Greek philosopher wrote this, begin with a cup or a household utensil. And if it breaks, say, I don't care. Or go on to a house or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself. And if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go long enough and if you try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Really, that is ridiculous. That is not contentment. That's just resignation and indifference that comes from human effort and really a lack of love. It's forcing yourself to be mentally okay with things that are bad and evil. Not only is that crazy, it's not biblical contentment. Biblical contentment is radically different. You have to remember, God created us to be creatures with an innate natural desire to be satisfied. And so the problem is not with our desires for satisfaction, our craving. It's what we crave is often the problem. So this is so really important to understand. Biblical contentment is not learning to be satisfied with stuff. It's not learning to be satisfied with a little, if that's what God gives you, or satisfied with a lot. That's not biblical contentment. What it is, simply put, is contentment is being totally satisfied in God alone. It's being completely independent of external circumstances because you are completely dependent on God. You are self-sufficient because you are God-sufficient. When you are satisfied in Him, you'll be satisfied in your circumstances, whatever they are, and with your material things, whatever they are. I love the Puritan pastor, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, who described contentment this way in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. In other words, Contentment is being so satisfied in God that you not only freely submit to whatever he brings into your life, but you also delight in it because God is your greatest treasure. That is a supernatural feat. When you are satisfied in him alone, everything else in life does not rise to the level of a need. That's why uh, David says in Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Literally, the Hebrew there means, I lack nothing. In Psalm 16, 8 through 11, David says, I have set the Lord always before me because, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is the central focus of his joy and delight. He says the same thing similarly in Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, 
Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When you are satisfied in God, you don't need nice clothes. You don't need accolades and honors. You don't need a certain career. You don't need a bodily health. You don't need personal freedom. You don't need to be noticed by others. You have all that you need. So then the question is, how do you find satisfaction in God? How do you delight in an invisible Savior you cannot see and cannot physically be with? I've got five, five steps. Five steps to find satisfaction in God. The first one is to remember your purpose. Remember your purpose. You were created for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, not having your felt needs met. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You were created and saved to serve the Lord. You will never find greater fulfillment, joy, and contentment in life unless you are embrace the purpose for which you were created. Preach this to your soul daily. Number two, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. How? By spending time in his word and in prayer. See, covetousness is a failure to know and or to believe God's word. Psalm 119, 35 through 37 says, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The psalmist recognized that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So he prays, Lord, incline my heart to love your testimonies, your word. Incline me, help me to delight in your commands. Do not dismiss the fundamental truth that man does not live by bread alone, but by the very words of God. Number three, recognize the danger of coveting. Recognize the danger of coveting. Covetous, covetousness never satisfies. It stunts your spiritual growth, and it can even destroy your soul in hell if left unchecked and unrepentant. All material things and your health will grow wings and fly away someday. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. All things in this world are fleeting, a vapor, here one moment, gone the next. Only God is everlasting. Number four, rehearse the gospel to yourself daily. Rehearse the gospel. The first thing you need to know in the gospel is the bad news, right? There's the good news and there's bad news. You can't have good news unless you have bad. And the bad news is that you don't deserve anything except God's judgment. So when we're tempted to be covetous, it's important to remember, I don't deserve anything except damnation in hell. And God would be just to send me there. But then the good news is that even though I don't deserve it, man, God in his mercy and his kindness and love, he lavished 
his grace on me. He has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He has laid up an eternal weight of glory waiting beyond all comprehension, waiting for me in heaven. And when I think about those things and remember those things, it makes any affliction in this life seem light and momentary. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, rehearse it. Number five, last one, daily fight the good fight of the faith. Daily fight the good fight of the faith. John Piper wrote this. He says, faith is the experience of contentment in Jesus. The fight of faith is the fight to keep your heart contented in Christ. To really believe and keep on believing that he will meet every need and satisfy every longing. Fight the good fight of the faith with the word of faith, with God's word. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In verse 6, then because of that truth, because of that promise that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But it's important to remember that as you fight the good fight of the faith, you cannot do that in your own strength. Remember, contentment is a supernatural work that God brings about in you. And that's why the last principle of contentment is to learn to be reliant on Christ's strength. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is one of many often misunderstood and misapplied and abused verses. It is hung in many a bathroom mirror or in locker rooms and recited as a mantra for inspiration to overcome extraordinary challenges. Many people believe this verse teaches that Jesus wants them to be victorious over any situation, like winning a basketball game. That's why point guard Steph Curry writes this verse on his shoes. Or winning a football game, like previous... Former quarterback Tim Tebow, who wore this uh, verse on his eye black and was prominently featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That as with any verse in the Bible, we must let the context control the meaning of a verse. All things refers back to the various circumstances of need or plenty that Paul faced. The strength that is given by Jesus isn't physical, it is a spiritual strength. And that strength that he gives is what undergirds and supports our ability to be content. This is what separates uh, biblical contentment from worldly contentment or resignation. We are not dependent on ourselves and our own strength. It's not a battle of the will. It is something that we must depend upon God for satisfaction and on Christ for the strength to battle covetousness. Now, there is a balancing act here. And Paul mentioned this earlier in his letter in chapter 2. We are responsible to exert ourselves to obey, but at the same time, completely dependent upon God for the ability to do it. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There you have the responsibility that we have. Everyone has a responsibility to work outward the salvation that God has already worked in you, to be obedient. And then he says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it, Paul? Am I supposed to obey or is God at work in me to do and to will for his good pleasure? 
Yes. Yes. Both of them are true. I am able to do this because of Christ doing it in me. You must control yourself, but you can't do it without the Spirit producing the fruit of self-control in you. Our dependence on the Spirit does not eliminate our own efforts. As John Piper noted, divine activity creates human activity. And another way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 129, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So because we are supernaturally united with Christ, he produces a spiritual strength necessary for glorifying God through obedience in the midst of hunger, need, plenty, or death, whatever the situation we find ourselves in. So how do you rely on his strength? Through the means of grace and the tools that Jesus has provided. If you're not relying on him through meditation on the word, if you're not relying on him through prayer, if you're not regularly fellowshipping among your brothers and sisters in the church, then you are relying on yourself and you will stumble. We need to continually, daily, take hold of what Christ has given to us for receiving his strength. And John Piper posed the following question in his book, Battling Unbelief, that I think is important for all of us to ponder. If you dropped dead right now, would you take with you a payload of pleasure in God, or would you stand before him with a spiritual cavity where covetousness used to be? In your life right now, do you find your satisfaction in God Or if you were to die and go stand before him, would you have a void in your soul because you were not letting God fill that void? We have to confidently, patiently trust in God's plans, even if he gives us a thorn in the flesh. His grace and strength is sufficient for you and is made new every day. Only when we are weak will God's power be made manifest in us. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 through 10, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, aka in order to glorify God, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we trust in his plans and promises, we can even learn to thank God for the fleas in our life. We have to pursue satisfaction in the Lord above all else as well. It's what he created us for, and it's the only way we will rise above our circumstances. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To believe in Jesus based on that illustration he uses, is to be satisfied in him. We must be reliant on him for strength. Jeremiah 17 warns, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But then an encouragement. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream 
and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. When the sufferings and material things of this life tempt us to covet, we must remind ourselves that we cannot serve two masters, for we will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank. Covetousness is a fair-weather friend that promises satisfaction but will only leave you high and dry in spiritual ruin and if left unchecked and unrepentant into eternal destruction. But Christ offers himself freely to all who will come to find satisfaction and eternal life in him. When we are satisfied in him, we are filled with joy, freed from anxiety, and able to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that the Lord is our shepherd and we lack nothing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have to confess that there are times that we spend trying to find satisfaction in such silly things in this world and that we are then neglecting the true source of satisfaction that is you. Our hearts, Lord, are prone to wander and I thank you for your word that shines as a lamp on the path that we must walk and gently reminds us and gently warns us of the dangers of covetousness and that gently points us back to true satisfaction. We thank you that you are so merciful to us and for always forgive us when we struggle to find our satisfaction in you, when we're uh, you know, hiding around and, play, and, and finding satisfaction in the equivalent of mud pies, when you offer us true, everlasting satisfaction in you. So Father, I pray that you would help each one of us in here to find our great and true delight in Jesus that you'd help us to draw nearer to him each and every day to fight that good fight of the faith and to be satisfied in him. We ask this in your son's name, amen.